0: Welcome back to another episode of Down Ballot Counts. I'm not Kyle Trickstad. He is taking a week off to spend time with the world's newest Trickstad, his newborn son. Big congrats to Kyle. Instead, you got me, David Schultz. Of course, I'm here with Bloomberg Government's Greg Drew. With just three weeks until the big day, we'll break down the latest campaign finance numbers with Down Ballot Counts All-Star Emily Wilkins, and then we'll hear an ad airing in South Carolina We were there with 99% of the precincts counted.
1: Number of other key down-ballot races. This is a very dramatic turn. We will have to look. House will be in order.
2: Chair requests that members clear the aisle, take seats, and cease audible conversation. From Washington, this is Bloomberg Government's Down-Ballot Counts.
0: But first, Drew's Gem.
2: Drew's Gem, my number of the week is 48 that's the number of U.S. Senators who previously served in the U.S. House. That number has hovered around half of the Senate membership for the past 20 years after rising in the 1980s and 1990s. This club includes Iowa Republican Chuck Grassley, the Senate President pro tempore, New York Democrat Chuck Schumer, the Senate Minority Leader, who would be in line to become Majority Leader if Democrats win a Senate Majority, and South Carolina Republican Lindsey Graham, who is a House Manager in Bill Clinton's Senate impeachment trial in 1999 and is now the chairman of the Senate Judiciary Committee. It's a well-trod career path from the House to the Senate, which is sometimes called the upper chamber because of its much smaller membership. Rarely does someone go from the Senate to the House. House members seeking Senate seats this year include Georgia Republican Doug Collins, Kansas Republican Roger Marshall, and New Mexico Democrat Ben Ray Lujan. Alabama Republican Bradley Byrne lost a Senate primary earlier this year, and Massachusetts Democrat Joe Kennedy lost a primary challenge to Senator Ed Markey, who spent more than 36 years in the House. And that, ladies and gentlemen, is your Jerome's gem for this week. All right. uh, Coming up
0: next, we're going to break down some campaign cash. This is Bloomberg Governments. Down ballot counts. There's lies, damn lies, and then there's polling. That's an exaggeration, of course, but it is true that you can't always judge how a candidate is doing by their position in the polls. That's why we like to look at campaign fundraising numbers in addition to polls. Because let's face it, it's kind of hard to argue that your campaign is doing great if you're not raising money. And to do that, we've brought back a familiar voice to many of you, Bloomberg Government's Emily Wilkins. Emily, how are you?
1: I'm great, David. Thanks so much for having me again.
0: So, Emily, we just finished with the third quarter of this year. Not every campaign has reported their numbers, from what I understand, but lots have. Uh, What did you learn from the third quarter numbers that we've seen so far?
1: So, so far, we've just seen the campaigns that have felt good enough to go ahead and release their numbers. The formal, just so listeners at home know, this is now the 13th. Filing is due on the 15th. So we're a couple days out from being able to do like really comprehensive deep dives into it. But from what we've seen, um, we've just been seeing huge huge numbers uh, from Democrats in the House, but particularly Democrats in the Senate. This past weekend, South Carolina Democrat Jamie Harrison uh, posted his campaign, said that he uh, raised $57 million uh, between uh, the start of July and the end of September, which is just that's an insane amount. It's a record breaking amount. It's a I I mean, they've they've moved the race what it used to be the solid red completely in favor. Of Lindsey Graham, and now we've seen it move to a toss-up. I mean, it's, it's it's not just Jamie Harrison; it's competitive Democrats across the country are raising huge, huge sums of money, and they're really giving a lot of these incumbent uh, Republican incumbents a run for their money.
0: Were there any numbers that you saw so far that really, really surprised you? Either people that you didn't expect to be doing well that are, or maybe campaigns that haven't reported their numbers yet, which would indicate, as you mentioned, that they are not doing very well, who, I mean, you know, you thought that they would have, uh, that you thought that they would be screaming their, uh, Campaign <laughs> fundraising totals from the rooftops, but they actually haven't reported yet.
1: Right. Um. I, I mean, I think that the biggest number so far has been Jamie Harrison's, but there are definitely plenty of, of other big numbers that we're seeing posted up from competitive races. Um. Also from house races, we've seen like two point two million dollars. I I believe for for Max Rose's campaign, as well as other numbers that are near the two million mark for other campaigns as well.
0: Where is uh Where is Max Rose? Oh,
1: I'm sorry. He's a uh, Staten Island. New York.
0: Staten Island New York. Don't, don't forget, I I uh I'm a guest host here, so I'm not Oh no, just, all good. All good. <laughs> I should good. I
1: should have clarified. That's okay. But no, it's even interesting too because they've used this money to really get up on TV. I mean, you saw this really you've seen some interesting ads from Max Rose lately. There's one where he literally just um it, like the entire ad is just him talking, uh, I don't know if I can say this word on the podcast, but him saying not nice things about Mayor Bill de Blasio. That's it. That's the whole ad. And I guess that's the kind of ad that you can run when you're raising that that kind of amount of money in a single quarter.
0: Th- thank you for uh, censoring yourself there.
1: No worries.
2: <laughs> yes, Emily, $57 million raised by Jamie Harrison. Some other numbers that I saw, Teresa Greenfield in Iowa, Cal Cunningham in North Carolina at more than $28 million for the quarter. John Hickenlooper running in Colorado, more than 22 million. MJ Hagar running against John Cornyn in Texas, more than 13.5 million. And that was about the amount that Barbara Bollier, a Kansas Democrat seeking to win a Republican health seat, raised in the third quarter there. Why have Democratic candidates been so phenomenally successful? in raising money?
1: I think it's a couple different things. I mean, number one, uh, I was uh, Democrats have, uh, they've done a good job at making it very easy for people to donate. I mean, they got Act Blue, which was their big donation system that's been up and running for more than a cycle now. They've been able to advertise it. They've been able to direct people to it. And they've sort of got people in this mindset where, you know, if you're upset about something, uh, the passing of Ruth Bader Ginsburg, the filling in of her seat before the election, there's sort of this immediate like, hey, you can do something, you can go ahead and you can make this donation. So I think we've seen a good bit of that. And I think on the other hand, there's just sort of a lot of, among the Democrats, there's anger toward the Trump administration, there's anger toward Mitch McConnell, there's anger toward Senate Republicans. And I think that that's actually been a big impetus for people to go and to donate. It's not just that you're donating to uh, Jamie Harrison or to Amy McGrath, it's that you're donating to beat Lindsey Graham, you're donating to defeat Mitch McConnell. And I think that Democrats have really used that strategy, in addition to, to putting forward solid candidates, uh, to help them raise the amount of money that we've seen.
2: I went back and looked back at the 2014 Senate campaign fundraising figures for the entire cycle, and it's just stunning how much fundraising seems to increase in each subsequent cycle. So over the entire two-year cycle, 2013-2014, the last cycle where these 2020 seats were last uh, contested, The top fundraiser was Kay Hagan, uh, $22.5 million raised for the entire two years. She she lost her re-election campaign to Tom Tillis, but it's just striking to me that the top-funded Senate incumbent for a two-year cycle, 2013-2014, raised less than some of these challengers are raising in a three-month period just six years later. And of course, you mentioned Jamie Harrison, and for those keeping score at home, Harrison smashed the previous three-month record of $38.1 million that Texas Democrat Beto O'Rourke raised in the third quarter of 2018 for his ultimately unsuccessful bid to unseat Ted Cruz. I think you touched on this just a minute ago, Emily, but maybe you could expand on it. What is it about Jamie Harrison and or Lindsey Graham that make the South Carolina Senate race, you think? particularly attractive for Democratic donors?
1: Well, there's, I think, two parts to that question. There's the Lindsey Graham part. Um, I think, you know, when you started off in 2016, you actually, Lindsey Graham was running for president. He came out, he called Donald Trump a kook. Uh, He, you know, kind of said that he wasn't fit for office. And then you see Lindsey Graham do this complete 180, where suddenly he's best friends with Trump, he's his golfing buddy, he sort of took back all the negative things he said about him, said a bunch of positive things. And I was talking with a number of strategists down in South Carolina who say, you know, that's part of Graham's strategy to make sure that, you know, he's getting support from the right. But the problem is then South Carolina, you need support from the right, but you also do need that independent support. And Graham has kind of lost that a little bit on both sides. People don't think that he's being genuine because he's changed his tune on Trump to such an obvious degree. Um, uh, Lindsey Graham has also been prominent in some of the hearings that we've seen uh, I think that his name is really out there. He's someone that, that people know, that they're aware of. Even if you don't live in South Carolina, you know who Lindsey Graham is and, and you have an idea of him and you might be tempted to donate against him then just because of that name recognition. Um, Jamie Harrison is another interesting one. I mean, I Greg, I haven't been covering this as long as you have, so feel free to disagree. But I cannot imagine a, a better candidate for South Carolina than Jamie Harrison. It's not only that he grew up there, that he came back there in his adult to teach. It's the fact that he has such, number one, such a strong personal narrative of going from poverty to the Ivy League, the whole promising to buy his grandparents a house and following through on that. And then there's the fact that he did spend time in Washington. He was a lobbyist with the Podesta Group. He was a right-hand aide for Representative Jim Clyburn. And so he has these connections across the country, and he's really been able to tap into those and to fundraise. And he's just sort of, you know, he's, 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 he's a good candidate. He's you know, able to really appeal to people. He's kind of got that, that natural charm that I think a lot of people look for in their elected leaders, particularly on the campaign trail. So yeah, I think it's just a combination between uh, Lindsey Graham sort of 180 on Trump and then Jamie Harrison just being a, a really, really, really strong candidate.
2: Yeah, I think that's right. I think you have the compelling candidate that with a compelling story. He has the background, as you mentioned, uh, Harrison was also the chairman of the South Carolina Democratic Party. And, uh, in that position, you have to know your donors and you have co- fundraising contacts, uh, and his involvement with the De- Democratic National Committee certainly put him in, uh, in, in touch with, uh, kind of a national fundraising network. And then of course, as you mentioned, the, the political environment and then run against Lindsey Graham, who, um, a lot of Democrats, uh, a lot of Democratic donors would like to see defeated. Um, money alone doesn't win Senate races, of course, but, um, Could you talk about just maybe what kind of all this money means for the big picture, the overall competitiveness of the U.S. Senate campaign? uh, Republicans, as you know, as our listeners know, have a three-seat advantage, 53 to 47 right now. What does all this money for Democrats do to uh, affect the competitiveness of the campaign?
1: so this amount of money has allowed democrats to get on air early i mean we're talking several months ago get on tv before their opponents and start defining themselves start getting out there and be like hey you might not have heard of me before but this is who i am this is my personal story these are my values and they're able to get out there number one early and then now they're able to get out there often so when there's an opposition ad run against them they can bring back an ad and retort they can you know they've got plenty of money to keep telling their story they've got plenty of money to to attack their opponent. They've got plenty of money to defend themselves. And I mean, at this point, I, I've talked to some of the poor people who live in some of these places and, and watch TV frequently, and apparently it's just ad after ad after ad after ad in some of these very competitive states and districts. But but that's sort of the main thing that money allows you to do. It allows you to tell your story. It allows you to get your name out there. It allows you to make sure that, that people know when they go to the polls who you are and, and whether or not, um, you know, wh- what you're what your platform is and, and make sure that you've been able to really make your pitch to people.
0: Well, uh, finally, Emily, um, I wanted to take a big, big step back here. And I think we had you on in the spring, uh, toward the start of this, uh, whole craziness, this, this pandemic. And we talked a lot about what campaign financing was going to look like during the pandemic. And there were just so many unanswered questions. It seems like a lot of those questions have been answered. How do you think that fundraising for campaigns has changed uh, as a result of the pandemic? Or did it change? Or, or or is it just sort of business as usual?
1: I think in, in some ways it has, and in some ways it, it hasn't. And I think the ways that it has... Uh, I think I kind of mentioned this in the beginning, but you've really seen a buildup of this digital infrastructure, of this ability to donate, particularly through Democrats, through um, Act Blue. And now Republicans are trying to copy that with their stra- online digital strategy, Win Red. I mean, you've just seen that be something that's really out there in front of people saying, hey, donate, donate, donate. You also have the ability now, I mean, if you are throwing a fundraiser um, and let's say, you know, Jamie Harrison in South Carolina, you can have people attend that fundraiser from all over the country, you are no longer limited to people who can physically get to South Carolina for that fundraiser.
0: I remember when when, when we had you on, you were talking about how like, oh, are people really going to do Zoom fundraisers? And the answer has been yes. 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 Yes.
1: They they will do Zoom fundraisers. They will show up for those.
0: All right. We will leave it there. Uh, Emily Wilkins is a reporter with Bloomberg Government. We are not done with South Carolina. Uh, We're going to go now. Uh, see what's on TV in the Palmetto State.
1: Liberals like Jamie Harrison see the world in a radically different way. They want to expand the court with liberal judges and fundamentally change who we are. We can't let that happen. They believe government can solve all of our problems. I don't. They believe in open borders, free health care for illegals and late-term abortion. I don't. They want to defund the police. I never will. I'm Lindsey Graham. I approve this message because we need a conservative Supreme Court.
0: That was an ad from Senator Lindsey Graham, who, as we just talked about, is in a very tough reelection bid against Democratic challenger Jamie Harrison. Uh, Greg, we've seen a lot of ads where it's just sort of a montage of news clips and there's a, a narrator, um, you know, in a very dramatic tone. This is just Lindsey Graham talking straight to the camera. Um
2: What do you think is going on here? Yeah, straight to camera ad as he narrates an ad about the importance of a conservative Supreme Court. And Graham is seeking to augment the court's conservative majority as chairman of the Judiciary Committee by shepherding Amy Coney Barrett's nomination through confirmation hearings that began this week. And in this ad, Graham really hits a lot of the hot button issues for conservatives. The Supreme Court, opposition to illegal immigration, abortion, and defunding the police, and he's seeking to tie Democratic challenger Jamie Harrison to liberals on those issues. I should note that Harrison said last week that he doesn't believe in changing the Supreme Court's membership size or the filibuster at this time. Now, Graham still has some room for growth among conservative voters and is running a bit behind President Trump in South Carolina, which Trump won by 14 points in 2016. The latest poll from Morning Consult had Trump up 12 In South Carolina, and Graham up six points. So, the average of the most recent polls show closer margins for both Trump and Graham. But the betting for Graham, I think, is that uh, running hard on the Supreme Court and conservative issues will help him shore up his right flank. President Trump, Graham's former bitter rival, may help pull the Sander across the goal line here. Graham lost about one third of the Republican vote in the primary and took less than the majority in conservative counties like. Greenville, and Spartanburg, there was a candidate from the strongly conservative Constitution Party, Bill Bledsoe, who withdrew from the race October the 1st and is backing Graham, but his name remains on the ballot, and Harrison would love to see some conservative votes siphoned over to Bledsoe.
0: Well, it's interesting because, you know, as we talked about, uh, you know, he's, Graham has got kind of weakness on his right flank, but weakness in, in the middle, that, you know, independents in South Carolina are also a little cool toward Graham. And it sounds like based on this ad his strategy in the closing weeks is to to really you know make sure that conservatives come out to vote for him and you know maybe the independent voters in the middle are less of a priority for him is that fair to say
2: yeah i think that's right um he's he's typically run behind president trump in the surveys that i've seen i don't think trump will win south carolina by the big margin he did in 2016 uh, but um, Graham does not have, Graham has some room for growth, I think, on his right flank. And I think his, uh, he's certainly betting that um, focusing on things like the Supreme Court and federal judges, uh, which he has a big say on from his committee chairmanship position, uh, I think he's betting that uh, emphasizing those issues will uh, solidify his conservative Republican base, which he think, I think he thinks should be enough to pull out a victory in conservative-leaning South Carolina.
0: Uh, All right. Well, we are going to close out the show uh, here. But before we go, we have a parting shot
2: of trivia for you. This is Down Ballot Counts. It's trivia time on Down Ballot Counts. Each week, I try to stump Kyle and you, our listeners, with a political trivia question. Let's first review last week's question and answer. I noted that Democrats need a net gain of three or four seats to win control of the Senate. But how many Senate seats did Democrats pick up from Republicans in 2006, the last time Democrats wrested control of the Senate from the Republican Party? And on a Bloomberg government Twitter poll, I gave you the choices of four seats, five seats, six seats, or seven seats. Now, usually I try and stump Kyle every week, but as you know, uh, he's not in this week and David is ably filling in. So, David, you have the honor of trying uh, to answer this trivia question, how many seats did Democrats pick up from Republicans in 2006?
0: If Kyle weren't on paternity leave right now, I would get him on the phone um, because I am feeling a little, a uh, little stumped here. I let's just you know what I remember 2006 was a big year for Democrats, so I'm gonna go big and I'm gonna say seven.
2: Okay, you were thinking in the right direction. Your heart was in the right place. It was actually six. Oh, Democrats flipped Republican seats in Missouri, Montana. Ohio, Pennsylvania, Rhode Island, and Virginia, all by seating incumbents. Democrats didn't lose any of their seats to the Republicans. Democrats needed all of those gains to reach a 51-seat majority. On November the 3rd, Democrats need four seats for a 51-seat majority, though they could win the majority with a net gain of three seats while winning the presidency. So six is the correct answer to that question. And now for this week's question. One of the highest-profile Senate elections is in Maine, where Republican Susan Collins is seeking re-election in a close race against Democratic challenger Sarah Gideon, the Maine House Speaker. I want to know, who was the last Maine U.S. Senator to be defeated for re-election? So leave that for our listeners and for Kyle when he comes back next week. That's a pretty tough one, I think. You may email your answer to bgovpodcast at bgov.com or tweet it at us using the Bloomberg government Twitter handle, at and use the hashtag downballotpod. We will post the question this week as a Twitter poll with four choices as always. And I will give the answer and ask a new question on the next episode of Down Ballot Counts.
0: All right. And uh, finally, Greg, what are you watching this
2: week? As we discussed on the program, Thursday is the deadline for candidates for the House and the Senate to file campaign finance reports detailing their donors and expenditures for this year's third quarter. Some of these Senate candidates said they raised eight figures during the three-month period, and those reports are going to be huge files to dissect. And we have a lot of candidate debates this week, including one tonight, the 13th, in Colorado between Republican Senator Cory Gardner and Democratic challenger John Hickenlooper, and there's one Thursday night in Iowa between Senator Joni Ernst and Democratic challenger Teresa Greenfield. Both Senate elections are key to determining whether Republicans keep their precarious majority. For much more on candidate debates, Please follow me on Twitter at Greg Giroux, where I include links to more than 130 past and upcoming debates.
0: That'll do it for this week. Uh, I will note here that Michael Bloomberg, the majority owner of Bloomberg Government's parent company, sought the Democratic nomination for president. He endorsed Joe Biden on March 4th. Be sure to check out all of our great political coverage at our website, about.bgov.com. See you next week. And congrats once again to Kyle Trigstad.
1: Taxes and accounting are complicated. But finding a good tax podcast shouldn't be. I'm Siri Belusu. And
2: I'm Amanda Icone. Listen to Talking Tax, the podcast that breaks down all of these issues
1: on a weekly basis. Every Thursday, Talking Tax will explain the latest issues for you. From what Congress is working on, to legal rulings, to the global digital tax debate. Download and subscribe to Talking Tax wherever you get your podcasts.